Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Oh, great wise man of the North, I have traveled north for many months to find your isolated cave. Isolated, yes. I thought it was pretty isolated. I am a seeker of truth and beauty, and I desire to know what you have learned in all your years of frozen solitude. Solitude is key, I can tell you that. So you went to a remote, wind-blown place where nobody could ever find you? That's what I thought, until just now. I am really hungry, and that broth smells so steamy and good. May I please have some? I would, I totally would, but look on the side of the package. See, it says single serving, so it's really not intended for sharing. Look, it's been great chatting with you. What's the big rush? You just, you know, you just sit here alone in a cave with a rug and a, and a pot and a fire. You'd be surprised. There are not enough hours in the day for all the stuff I need to do. Hey, look, the northern lights. Oh, really? Where? Hey, that wasn't fair. If you leave now, you can get a jump on the traffic that doesn't exist for a 3,000-mile radius. Wow, he was so grouchy. I hope everybody up here isn't like that. How about you, Mr. Polar Bear? (sighs) See, that's what I'm talking about. He's so happy to see me. He's running right towards me. And now the guy who owns the Dippin' Dots concession up here... Colin McEnroe, down, boy! Bad polar bear! Okay, that doesn't sound like it's going well. And I have to admit, I do not saw a lot of Dippin' Dots up there. Um, all right, so we're, Katie Tularski and I, for a couple of weeks, have been talking about this idea. And, and it really, uh, it's either a good thing or a bad thing about our show, that occasionally we do a show about something that really isn't necessarily an accepted and recognized topic. We're not even 100% sure it's a thing. Except that the more that we looked at it, the more we talked about it, the more we were pretty sure it was a thing. This is where you live. You choose to live here. You obviously think that there's something important that resides here. And and if you were to really go on kind of a a deeper Keatsian journey uh, for truth and beauty and mystery and rectitude and and self-challenge, chances are you'd go north. You know, you wouldn't go south. What are you going to learn in the south? Like another Jimmy Buffett song. So so that there's something that we value here. And it's more than well, actually, before I prattle on here, uh, the New York Times was nice enough to assign uh, Karl Ove Nausgaard, whose name I probably just mispronounced, uh, the gloomy and very amusing Norwegian writer to be kind of a de Tocqueville and come to America uh, and uh, to the new world, really, uh, and uh, and write a cover piece, a travel piece. Uh, which he had a great deal of trouble writing. But at one point near the beginning of the piece, he's in Greenland, and he's sort of thinking about the the Scandinavians who came there a thousand years ago uh, and and created their little settlement. He's about to be, visit their little settlement. He does visit their little settlement, I think, in the northern uh, tip of Greenland when he, he writes this. 
In front of me lay a world so beautiful and so cruel that it numbed my senses. The vast expanse of the sky, the dark blue ocean beyond, beneath the pale blue sky, the islands in the distance, the sheer cliffs rearing up from the water, and then the strip of land that could be glimpsed uh, to the north, which had to be Labrador. It was completely silent. I stood there without moving for a long time, looking out to sea. The silence did something with the landscape. Usually something is making a sound. The wind sweeping across the land, whistling past every ridge or rise it encounters. Birds squawking or chirping, and the sea, the constant sowing night and day that sometimes in a storm turns into roaring and hissing. But everything was still. All the so- all sounds belong to the moment. They are part of the present, the world of change, while the soundless belongs to the unchanging. In silence lies age. So that's Carl Ove Nausgaard brooding uh, about uh, uh, and, and sort of turning his very, very Nordic and, and north-oriented sensibilities on a very north-oriented scene. And it sums up a sensibility that I think a lot of us do have. And maybe it does help answer that question. What are we doing here in places where snow and sleet and wind define one-third of the year? I think we have a sense that profundity of intellect and spirit form an invisible curtain in the northern air. And when we crave a kind of mystery that humans can't make, we go farther north to the solitude and the auroras. Quick, Picture that wise man living in solitude you heard in the introduction. He's up on a mountaintop, right? Surrounded by cold air. When Superman wanted to get contemplative, he doesn't head for the Florida Keys. His fortress of solitude is in the Arctic. Today on the show, we're talking about something that only scarcely has a name. We're calling it Northmanship. It's an aesthetic, but it's so much more than an aesthetic. It's something very primal. Um, when we started looking for guests, we found that guests, potential guests either knew right away what we were talking about or they had no idea what we were talking about. Uh, So we wisely booked the people who right away knew what we were talking about. Those people include Michael Robinson, author and associate professor of history at University of Hartford. He writes a blog about science, history, and exploration called Time to Eat the Dogs. I assume that's uh, an Amundsen. Is it an Amundsen joke there? Uh, Time to Eat the Dogs? Yeah, it wasn't. The quote's not from him. It was actually a guy named Lawson, but Yeah. yeah. Amundsen, of course, uh, in his uh, race to the to the pole, one of the things he figured out is if you eat some of your dogs, you don't get scurvy, and you, know, you can keep going. Scott, being a sentimental Englishman, would not eat his dogs. That's incorrect. Yeah. Throw you froze to death. Mm-hmm. All right. I just wanted you to know I got that reference. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, joining us also, Luann Rice, author of more than 30 novels, including 22 consecutive New York Times bestsellers, uh, and also with us, uh, Mary Erlander, director of Arctic and Northern Studies program at the University of Alaska uh, at Fairbanks. She's a professor of history. So, boy, do we have the right guests. Um, and actually, uh, Lou Ann Rice, uh, I'm going to bring you onto the air uh, right now along with Mary. And um, Lou Ann Rice, maybe you can kind of get us going. You did something that I think you didn't even really plan all that uh, carefully. Uh, you recently found yourself in Norway and then suddenly the Arctic beckoned. Can you just quickly tell us uh, that story of what you did? Sure. Well, and thank you for having me on as always. But, you know, I I had this quibble. I almost like didn't want to do it because I feel like the North is a little bit like Fight Club in that we don't you, talk about the North? Yeah, you don't. If you love the North, you don't talk about the North because it is something deep inside and very, very, you know, for me anyway, inspiring and important to my life. And so I was honored, but, and I'm glad to be on, but I, I do feel like it's a very, um, you know, it's like a, it's a little flame that is always kind of going, and I have to keep that quite precious. And um, 
the the trip, you know, as you know, I went over to Norway to see Bill Pullman in a play in Bergen, and Bergen is beautiful and it's north, but I saw a ferry that I heard was steaming up toward the Arctic Circle, and I just thought immediately, I'm getting on, and I did. I got the last cabin. It was the last cabin on the deck, too, so I was all the way at the stern of the ship, and we, we went north. We went through the fjords. I'd never been, and um, it was profound, and I did see the northern lights. Um, and, and just to, to follow up on that, and I'm going to get our other guests involved, uh, Lickety Split, but just to follow up on that, I mean, this, yeah, you saw the Northern Lights, but I mean, I know you, we should say it, we've known each other for decades, I know you well enough to know that this isn't just about seeing the Northern Lights, that there's some kind of ongoing conversation you've been having with yourself pretty much your entire adult life that has to do with what does it mean to be alive, what is, what's my exact relationship with the world, how does nature interact with my spirit, and that these questions, the answers to these questions i think implicitly for you do lie to the north rather than anywhere else definitely and you know i i mean growing up in new britain and i think seeing rockwell kent paintings at the museum and and reading salamina as a child and probably my favorite book as a child was snow queen and other stories and you know new connecticut does have a northern landscape especially when we were kids colin you know and big high snow banks and i mean it was but I wanted something more, and I think being drawn to an edge of is a lot to do with it. And I, I, I think, you know, an emotional edge, but also a literal edge of a continent and seeking what nature is there and what sights, what clarity of sky and light and all of that. And then hopefully clarity of spirit as well. So, uh, Michael Robinson, uh, we're having kind of a northern moment culturally, and we'll come to that. But I feel like we would be incorrect to suggest that somehow or other we of the latter 20th century and early 21st century invented that kind of moment. And I know some of my radicalization came from reading the novels of Roberts and Davies, which aren't set in the far north. But I suddenly thought, wow, there's this whole Canadian sentiment in here that... There's a there's a an intelligence and a mystery and a um, a, a depth that um, I've never really encountered before. It really kind of speaks to me. I mean, everybody has their own version of that when they if they ever hear the North crooking its finger at them or see that, um, you know, they they have their own version of it. So romanticization of the North. I mean, how long has it been going on? Uh, really, from the late 1700s, you had you know really with the dawn of the Romantic movement, you had. Uh, landscape painters like Caspar David Friedrich, who became famous not only for painting these wild, austere, you know, scenes in Germany and in uh, Europe, continental Europe, but but also of the ice. And uh, he has this uh, one, the Sea of Ice, which is this incredibly, uh, you know, sublime painting of ice in the that he painted in the early 1800s. And um, Frederick Church too, Hartford Hartford boy, Frederick y- Church. Yeah, there 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 was a huge vogue of uh, Arctic stuff. It was it was kind of like a, a, a number of things came together. One was, I think, you know, with the Industrial Revolution, you had, uh, you know, especially in Britain and then afterwards in in Europe, uh, this kind of huge expansion of population and industry, uh, and a lot of people started getting anxious about their relationship to nature, and so nature started taking on a different. A relationship, and so these things started to, to happen. And then, at the same time, you had the British, who really began a kind of full bore exploration of uh, the search for the Northwest Passage in the early 1800s. And so these two things came together. In fact, Frankenstein is actually set in the Arctic. People kind of forget the fact that 
Dr. Frankenstein is recounting all of his tales of the monster up on the deck of an Arctic ship. Um, so um, uh, we'll come back to that. But uh, Mary Erlander, um, once again, director of the Arctic and Northern Studies Program at the University of Alaska. Um, I guess I'm sort of wondering whether all northern sensibilities are created equal. I mean, we can talk about Scandinavians. We can talk about Russians who are, I think, right now uh, bidding to uh, uh, shoulder their way back uh, into a, uh, an international cultural conversation that they might might have been left out of a little bit in recent years. But so, but you you specialize in a, in a Alaska. When you talk about the sensibility of Alaska, um, I'm assuming it's kind of site specific that that there may be some commonalities among northern cultures, but there's also some things that are are distinctly Alaskan in attitude or zeitgeist. Uh, well, yes, I, I I think you're right there. Um, there's no question. Although I I do have to say. Uh, I don't uh, entirely specialize in Alaska. Uh, the, our program really does focus on the entire uh, circumpolar north, although there's no question that uh, there's greater emphasis on Alaska, partly because most of our students are Americans, and uh, many of them are from Alaska, and so it's sort of a natural emphasis on Alaska. People are here immersed in the environment, immersed in the in the culture as they study the North and the Arctic, and so, yes, there's a greater emphasis on Alaska. But then, um, to your point about um, similarities and differences, um, we certainly, I mean, the reason that the Arctic and Northern Studies program was launched, actually it was launched as a Northern Studies program in 1992 at the uh, end of the, well, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and that wasn't a coincidence. That, that, was, that was a new era when, when one could conceive of the circumpolar north really as a region and when communication opened up and indigenous peoples could, could uh, talk with one another, collaborate with one another, scientists, uh, from east and west could could collaborate with it, uh, each other, and there was a lot of excitement about recognizing um, our our common uh, our common interests, our to- common concerns, and so on. Um, and so, yes, there are many many commonalities, and yet um, there are distinct. Uh, we are distinct in the various regions, and I would say that one of the um, sort of aspects of the of the North that resonates especially deeply in Alaska is the notion of the frontier, and and that is a um, that's sort of a contested notion, and it's a it's a, a controversial notion because on the one hand it um, connotes sort of a rapaciousness that um, people come in, you know, colonial, sort of uh, colonialism coming in and extracting resources and getting rich and taking those resources south and so on, and never mind the people who have lived here since time immemorial. But on the other hand, there's another much more romantic notion of the frontier uh, that stresses individualism and the uh, the potential for the individual to sort of self-actualize or reinvent herself or himself, uh, the notion that anything is possible, um, and so so there are very romantic uh, notions associated with the frontier and and they're historical. I mean that's an historical concept that most people associate with Frederick Jackson Turner, and it's somewhat been. Um, 
uh, you know, new Western historians have debunked that notion, but I can tell you that the, the frontier is alive and well in Alaska, these notions of frontier. And people, uh, Alaskans who are lifelong Alaskans like myself, uh, as well as newcomers to Alaska, uh, identify with that notion of a frontier. Um, you know, Lou Anne Rice, uh, there are several kinds of frontiers. Well, she just talked about two different kinds of frontiers, but there's an, a third kind of frontier, and that's the inner frontier. Um, and, and it seems to me that it almost goes back to your point about um, the North as fight club. You don't talk about fight club. You don't talk about the North partly because one of the reasons it is a frontier, one of the reasons that people go there uh, is uh, to achieve solitude and uh, to engage in an exploration of the self, which is not possible uh, under other circumstances. So obviously you're sitting in New York City, which is kind of the opposite right now. Uh, but but I assume that's part of the lure of the North for you. Well, it is. And I was really interested to hear what Mary said just now, because I think that is part of my, you know, quiet about it is that it, it is so exploitable. I mean, I, it, I have I feel as if, you know, it, it gives me so much and it's completely internal. It's like a, a feeling of of something so much greater than myself that I'm viewing all this beauty and I'm experiencing like a kind of um, hardship in a sense, like with the more, you know, more rugged, like more rugged terrain and more rugged seas and, you know, that kinds of things that are outside my normal experience. But, you know, at one point I was feeling quite happy as we, we went north and through the fjords because I felt like it's pure here. You know, it's like you'd see the occasional settlement. There'd be an, a little town or there'd be one little house with a light on. And I'd think, I'd look at that house and think, are they happy in there? And is it, is it a good life? Is it lonely? Are they on the Internet? You know, what is going on in there? And then I, you know, would just feel like the sense of peace and that there's more space. And then the next thing you know, we go buy a big oil rig, you know, so... It, it It is, I mean, the resources are obviously, you know, very much up for grabs, and I find that sad, but that is part, you know, part of why I guess I, I, I don't talk about it that much because it's not reasonable. It's just a feeling I have, you know, that's been there for a really long time from, you know, being a little kid and looking out my window. And, you know, remember when, like, ice used to form on the inside of our windows because mm-hmm. it was so cold? Those little, you know, kind of like snow angels would be on the window panes. Um, stop me if I'm sounding crazy. <laughs> no, and uh, we should say that actually you are on the one public radio show where you're not required to be reasonable. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> right, because so, it's you. Of yeah, that's course. right. We're, okay. We don't we don't elevate reason in any spe- uh, specific way here. But I want to just piggyback on something that you're saying, that Mary's saying, and, and, and talk to Michael about this. Uh, Michael, I, I think you read uh, something that, that I wrote where I talked about my one of my primary cultural theories is we celebrate a thing most feverishly when we see it dying or receding from us so that, you know, you want to think think about previous frontiers. The vogue for Buffalo Bill Wild West shows didn't happen at the peak uh, of the American frontier. It happened as the American frontier was closing and dying, you know, and and we went through a period in the 1980s where there were all these television shows like Picket Fences and Northern Exposure and Twin Peaks about these incredibly quirky, idiosyncratic towns at almost exactly the time when CVS and Walmart and everything like that was taking over the DNA code of American small town life and driving out idiosyncrasy. And I wonder if the vogue right now, uh, if there is one, and I think we would agree there is one, it, uh, for celebrating the North comes at a time when, because of climate change, because of other stuff, it, it, it's actually something in ways that Luann just suggested that might be slipping away from us. I think that uh, it definitely picks up on, I mean, what you said about the you know Buffalo Bill show is, 
totally correct. And the American frontier only becomes this huge thing. In fact, people didn't even know about Lewis and Clark until the beginning of the 20th century at a point at which the frontier had closed. And um, it was at that point that Native Americans went from scary, frightening, uh, you know, p- savages of the far west to these kind of nostalgic, uh, you know, individuals who are slowly dying off and the so- so-called noble savage. And and there certainly is something like that with the north. I think in the 1800s, the Arctic was a place where you could, especially for um, uh, North American men, you could kind of prove your stuff, you know, the right stuff uh, equivalent of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. I think the new vogue of the Arctic is a little bit different because you see, you know, and definitely uh, you see this in uh, a number of different arenas, that this is something that's not uh, uh, exclusive to men at all. This is a seems to be a much more, you know, kind of inclusive phenomenon. And I, and I think um, I speculate that, that it's not as much that the North is extreme, that you need to show your muscle or your prowess to get there. But in, in a sense, it's a kind of, as you, as you had put it earlier, an inner landscape. And at a time when our lives seem so cluttered by, you know, Twitter and by social media and all of these other things, that these kind of austere landscapes of quietness that you see in, you know, Kurt Wallander, uh, you know, mm-hmm. either the Kenneth Branagh version of it or the original Swedish version, is uh, there's something deeply kind of resonant about that and a kind of life that we imagine ourselves living, if, if only for a few minutes. Um, Mary, I'm also, I feel like we're committing a, a cardinal sin in a way in that, you're what you're what's happening right now is that you're sitting here listening to a lot of outsiders uh, <laughs> talk about something that's perceived di- differently. Does this would this conversation take place the way it's taking place if um, it was were for indigenous Alaska people? I mean, people like you who are from there, who grew up there, um, or is this a, a bunch of uh, gringos and and dudes uh, from dude ranches talking about a north that we we understand only as visitors? So we talk about all these concepts that uh, that everyone online has just been discussing right now. Um, in my class, I, I teach a, a graduate seminar at, called uh, Perspectives on the North, and we wrestle with these issues. But then, you know, at the end, we do laugh at ourselves a little bit because we realize that most people out there just are not really, uh, you know, grappling with these kinds of rather esoteric uh, intellectual uh, uh, notions of the North. But um, uh, and and there is there is this tension two between insiders and outsiders perceptions of the north but i can assure you that uh you know most alaskans most northerners don't uh assume that only we insiders people who've been here for a long time have a right to um uh, believe in the north or be captivated by the north or have uh you know have a um sort of a stake in the north and um and by the way i might just clarify so i am um i'm a native alaskan but i am not alaska native so i was born here but i'm not an indigenous alaskan gotcha um but um that's really neither here nor there but i perhaps someone might have wanted to know um but i i wanted to sort of throw one other thing into the mix here um and that is that i think especially now what we're seeing in the north that is so captivating 
is is we there's this tension between on the one hand this extraordinary power in nature that we recognize in the north especially with the ice and i mean this was very much the case in the age of um you know uh, romanticism but um but now it's also it's it's that the power of nature um in tension with the fragility of nature and and concern about uh you know about the arctic environment and concern about the people who live the indigenous peoples in particular who live in the arctic environment and who are dependent upon it and then of course uh from there we go to the fact that what's happening in the arctic is is you know i mean the arctic is the canary in the coal mine right for what's going on what's going what's coming elsewhere so so i think that's really an interesting sort of uh tension or or uh, you know contrasting images of the north this notion of of powerful nature and yet very fragile nature and it's so vulnerable to in particular to the actions that uh, human beings take um, I know you have to go teach a class uh, in just yeah. a few minutes, so thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to go to a break, but right before we do, Michael Robinson, I think you had uh, one thing you wanted to say about that. Yeah, I just wanted to piggyback on what Mary was saying about these different visions of the Arctic, because I think uh, you know this idea of the Arctic as this ex- or northernness as an extreme or as a sublime landscape or as a lonely landscape. None of that really attaches to the uh, the the Inuit, uh, at least traditional Inuit vision of the Arctic. There's great work by a historian, Karen Rutledge, who wrote about whalers and Inuit interacting um, in Cumberland Sound on Baffin Island, and how the uh, the Inuit of that area, the Inupiat, would would look at uh, the uh, the the landscape and see friendly. You know, they'd have names for every rock. You know, proper names. Um, because they're a nomadic people, they would view travel as home rather than a domicile, and that they viewed the most extreme uh, seasons, the winter and late fall, as a kind of happy time because during this time they could actually travel on the ice and hunting was really good. So, you know, <laughs> they had a totally, totally different vision from, you know, these more southern uh, southern latitudes where we, we think about these places as scary and extreme. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with more Luann Rice, more Michael Robinson. Um, uh, we're going to talk really, we'll talk a little bit more about the cultural uh, moment that the North is happening. Uh, having. Don't forget, Legos are from Denmark. As strong as an oak, as quick as a thunderbolt, to adventure he'll rise. The northern boy can be gentle as a lamb. And just like a sheep, he will follow you whenever he can. All right, we're back. We are talking about uh, what we, for want of a better term, we call it Northmanship, although that's a little gender specific. We need something better. North personship doesn't sound that good. Uh, and w- so we're really kind of talking about what it is that we value. Why do we all live here? Why, you know, you get emails all the time from people telling you it's 72 degrees in Charleston, but you don't want to go to Charleston. You might want to go to Charleston for the week, but somehow or other here is where you want to be. You wouldn't want to be without the cold and the snow. And really, when you think about some of the higher values you think north. And this is really now very heavily reflected in our culture. 
Um, I mean, the cultural footprint of Northmanship is huge right now, ranging from uh, Scandinavian TV, which is all over the place, to and all of our novels, and I'm sure Luann's going to talk about that in just a second, to Game of Thrones, in which moral rectitude and mystery are rooted in the North, whereas dissipation and corruption live in the South. Um, and even, you know, you could say uh, the lumber sexual aesthetic is kind of the evocation of that same mystique, maybe an expression of yearning and wistfulness for something that's actually vanishing. Uh, and Russia's trying to muscle its way in now, as I said. If you want to do some homework uh, after this show, you can go see Leviathan, which is playing in Hartford right now. It's set in the Barents Sea in eastern Russia. And I was just on the website of the Morning News. The lead article is about mushers, uh, dog racers on the easternmost tundra of Russia. Russia's surging back here. So Luann Rice, first of all, let me just reintroduce everybody. Luann Rice is here with us, author of more than 30 novels, uh, and including 22 consecutive New York Times bestsellers, and recently returned from a trip to uh, first Norway and then to the Arctic Circle. Michael Robinson is the author and associate professor of history at uh, University of Hartford, uh, writes a blog about science, history, and exploration called Time to Eat the Dogs. Um, so, Luann, this kind of Scandinavian or, or Nordic, well, let's say Nordic so we can include uh, what Mary was calling the, the circumpolar north, uh, or uh, I might have gotten that wrong, but um, whatever she was calling it. Um, this is, you know, it's not just like uh, about Volvo and Abbas, um, or Volvos and Abba. I got that backwards. It's, this is sort of a, um, a really kind of multidisciplinary um, aesthetic uprising, and I'm assuming that you as a writer feel very much the uh, the pressure and the influence of a lot of these Nordic writers. Who's who's speaking to you right now? Well, I um, while in Bergen, I had a very special tour of the city by the mystery writer Gunnar Stalson, who is one of the fathers of Nordic noir. So he is one of the um, writers who is known has become known for. Um, the books that I think you're talking about, the mysteries and uh, some of the, sh- even the, the show that Michael referenced, uh, Wallander, that are, that, you know, that, and so anyway, Gunnar, Gunnar writes this series with a, a private investigator named Varg Vum, and I, I, he gave, he was really sweet, he gave each of us a signed copy, and so I took mine on the, sh- on the ship, and I read it, and it, it, there is like a, a different sensibility. I love mysteries and I love thrillers. Reading them, and um, it, it was specifically was specifically north. It was very cozy at the same time as being kind of brutal. And um, I, you know, I love I love I love noir, no matter where it's set. But there is I don't know there is something about that. And I read the cover story of the New York Times this weekend, and I've, I <laughs> did begin uh, my struggle a while back based on the recommendation. I think it was Roxana Robert pretty sure it was Roxana Robinson, who um, is the head of the literary, the um, the Authors Guild. We should. I just just interrupt that. My struggle is the name of uh, Nosgard's uh, big epic thing. You didn't begin your own struggle. Just, no, I no, didn't no, want no, people no, to I'm think sorry. that you no, were no, beginning no, your I own struggle. I began reading. Yeah. I read, read part one, and now there's part two and three. But I'm enjoying it very much. And you know, Roxana is um, has great taste, so anything she recommends, I will read. Um, and you know, and I love. I, there's a lot of work by people who are not from the Arctic or from the the polar north, but they, who write about it so beautifully. And I I think one of the ways that I got specifically, you know, I, I'm an environmentalist, and of course I'm very concerned about the ice and about polar regions. And um, I read some books by Gretel Ehrlich a few years ago that I know I talked to you about, Colin. This Cold Heaven is one of them, and The Future of Ice. And 
there's um, a great book called Lazy Point by the writer Carl Safina, who um, it's set on Lazy Point, which is almost directly across Long Island Sound from my place in Old Lyme. So it has the same ecology of Long Island Sound and what we in Connecticut know so well. But he also he d- he does this wonderful thing where he travels to other parts of the world and especially to the Arctic and speaks about how what's happening there is affecting our ecology and our environmental um, situation. And, and so I'm very drawn to books like that. And, and I think, you know, I wrote a book with Joe Moninger, who is a North, a Northwoods guy from New Hampshire. He's a wonderful writer and English professor um, who also mushes dogs, although in New Hampshire, not Russia. Hmm. And uh, so, you know, my reading taste is very much, you know, I think maybe slanted that way. One of the things that kind of propelled us into this topic was uh, sort of a cultural artifact that we found, uh, and that is uh, this uh, clip from Glenn Gould. You think of Glenn Gould as a pianist. This is this um, kind of audio documentary, this radio documentary. Uh, It's something called the Solitude Trilogy, and one part of it is the idea of North. So uh, Katie Talarski kind of edited it down a little bit, uh, or quite a bit, actually, just so you can have a little taste of this Glenn Gould artifact. Let's uh, hear that now. And I was always looking for a polar bear or some seals that I could spot, but unfortunately there were none. And as we flew along the east coast of Hudson's Bay, this flat, flat I don't go, let me say this again, I don't go for this northmanship bit at all. Because it just uh, seemed endless. I don't, uh, we seemed to be going into nowhere. Not those people who do claim that and they the further north farther, we went, farther north and so on. But I see it as a, as a kind of a game, this uh, northmanship bit, with people saying, well, you know, were right, you ever up at the North Pole? You know, and hell, I did a, uh, no, a dog sled trip of 22 you. days, and the other fellow said, well, well, I did one of 30 days. No, it's another very childish. Perhaps they would see themselves as more. Sure, the North has changed my life. I can't conceive of anyone being in close touch with the North, whether he lived there all the time or simply traveled it month after month, year after year. I can't conceive of such a person being really untouched by the North for the rest of his life. When I left in 1965, at least left the job... It goes on like this, as though there's some um, special merit, some virtue to being in the North, or some special virtue in having been with the primitive people. special virtue which you're in so an overlay of voices arranged by the pianist uh, Glenn Gold, and I love uh, the repetition of that phrase, special virtue. That's so much what we're talking about today. And Michael Robinson, you know, listening to, listening to Luann talk and listening to the Glenn Gold thing and, uh, and, and thinking about what we've said so far, one of the things that also strikes me that might ta- uh, speak a little bit to the flowering uh, that we're seeing right now uh, of kind of Nordic-oriented culture is that notion that it is a site-specific culture at a time when there's um, a, a homogenization uh, of um, a, a lot of other culture. A lot of other cultures starting to look, everybody's culture starting to look like everybody else's. Uh, we're listening to, you know, Korean pop uh, these days. That there is something resolutely and stubbornly geographically site-specific uh, about this culture, and, and maybe we relish that. I think that has to be a part of it because despite the incredible connectedness of, <clears throat> you know, the entire globe through uh, the Internet and other means, satellite phones, et cetera, when you get to these places where permafrost becomes, you know, the, the building foundation of all, of all uh, structures, it, j- the world just looks different. I mean, when you fly into Barrow, Alaska, which you can't drive into, mm. uh, which is really at the top of the, the you know, the continent, 
um, it's just you're just surrounded by these these flat thousands of flat shallow lakes, and then the town itself is everything is built on stilts because you can't build build it directly over the permafrost. Your buildings would melt into the ground. Um, so everything's built on stilts. They're Quonset huts from the U.S. military and other structures. And uh, when you go into the Russian Arctic, it has its own feel. It's also a lot of these towns are completely cut off. You have to fly in or, or come in by, you know, icebreaker. And, um, and yeah, there's a kind of uh, incommensurability of these places. And in a sense, you feel like however connected it will one day be, it's still going to be somehow unique and uh, pushed to the edge. I mean, Luin, I, I feel that, too, about the Scandinavian literature that people uh, are so attached to these days, or even some of the Scandin- Scandinavian television. I actually have the set of Borgen now, the Danish uh, the Danish West Wing, which people are, uh, yeah, Michael's putting his uh, thumb up. That's a, that's a pretty good one. But it seems to me what's, you know, like you, I know you well enough to know that the trip that you just took is percolating inside you and you're starting to think about fiction that will be based on it somehow. But the one thing you're not going to do is write a Scandinavian novel, right? Because because it is Scandinavian <laughs> and there's, there's something, uh, you know, it, it really doesn't sound like everywhere else, which is kind of what we like about it. I think that's true, and I'm sort of I'm you know I mean there are, I, I want to say this that there are a lot of places that I love and that are that draw me, including Charleston, which you mentioned, and including you know other more southern and uh, and totally different places. So I think in a way it's just like the maybe the allure of far away or the allure of somewhere else, but specifically the north. It's true that I and you you know you and I know each other a long time, so I'm sure you. I used to go and revise almost every single one of my novels up in Maine. I'd rent a house as far up as I could get, um, you know, as far away from everything as I could get and just, you know, be there. And it was a good place to concentrate and see beauty um, and and see and somehow seek clarity. And I think that that had something to do with it. I, of course, I could never try to write a Scandinavian uh, novel. I wouldn't even know how to begin. I love to read them. But, you would just have to add a lot of vowels to the names. Yeah. Of your well, actually, you know, I'm kind of when my books are published in Norway, I especially love them because they're three <laughs> times longer. Yeah. They're like a thousand <laughs> pages long, um, so that's always exciting. But um, yeah, I I don't think that I'll be writing any of them, but I do I do love reading them. Um, actually, Peter's got a, uh, and Adam's got an interesting question. Then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to tell you an unusual story about Iceland. The show is flying by right now. Peter, uh, are you there? And what's your question? Gould was um, had Asperger's syndrome, and um, I always wondered about how the Asperger's syndrome affected his concept of the North and his love for the quiet and the isolation. Well, I think it's a great question. Um, obviously, this documentary was done in 1967, so Glenn Gould didn't know that he had Asperger's syndrome, but he, he knew that he was different from other people. I don't know, Michael, uh, I did see you nodding during that question. Oh, just, just it's, a, it's a really interesting question because um, the North, I think especially for Southerners like us people from Connecticut, uh, we tend to view this austere landscape. But the high, higher up you go, the more difficult to travel it is and the more people you need to get there. Mm. And so the you know the explorers uh, who went up and even people from the Hudson Bay Company and others, they had to go with huge, huge amounts of provisions with people, with dogs, with, with women to, you know, to sew the sealskin suits that they wore. I mean, these were massive expeditions in some cases. And so even our idea of the kind of lonely, go-it-alone north, 
it's kind of uh, probably the last place someone who, who suffers from social isolation syndrome should go. <laughs> Um, all right, let's. Uh, we're going to grab a quick break here. We have uh, just enough time to tell you uh, an amazing story from Iceland. Iceland, which seems to be especially, you should pardon the expression, cool these days. I even know somebody who's getting married there. Don't matter today where I'll always stay, my home in the north. If Scandinavian culture is so great, why are all the chairs from Ikea so uncomfortable? Today's show was produced by Katie Talarski and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pistel and Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill appeared in the introduction and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by ABBA. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making that five-month-old Icelandic rotten shark dish, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now... Back to Colin. We shouldn't have mentioned the rotten shark dish right before having a guest on from Iceland because I think most people in Iceland don't ever eat that. But um, but I could be wrong. Maybe it's the first thing you get offered when you walk in there. Uh, joining us right now is, uh, and I apologize in, in advance for uh, any mess I may make of your name, Hadla uh, Oscar's daughter. How did I do? Uh, you, you got an 8 out of 10. Okay. Well, you say it for me so uh, so that it gets said properly at least once on the show. Yeah, it's Hatla Oskarsdóttir. Okay. I, I, I think eight was generous. Uh, yeah, well, I'm a good person. <laughs> all right. Well, people from Iceland tend to be. I mean, that's almost one of the themes of this show. But what are the things that we are, one of the reasons we're having you on, and we should say uh, you hold a master's degree in creative writing from the University of Iceland. You've worked as a journalist, columnist, book critic in Iceland. Uh, you write fiction and radio drama. Um, but uh, you recently uh, ran an, uh, had an article in Quartz uh, about yeah. a practice that Icelanders have have involving their babies. And I'll let you uh, pick up the story from there. I'm surprised with all the attention this has gotten because uh, I didn't uh, realize that this is so strange. <laughs> so the thing is in Iceland that um, parents, when they put their babies na- to their lunch naps, uh, they take them outside for a, a stroll and then they leave them outside for the nap and pick them up when they wake up. So that's a basic nap time for children in Iceland. This goes a little bit further than that, right? In other words, this this is, I mean, you could sort of understand that on a, a pleasant summer day in Reykjavik, but this this is kind of a year-round practice, right? Yes, definitely. Well, people will hesitate if the temperature is like minus something, but even if it's freezing outside, people will just dress their children well and, and put them to their strollers and, and uh, let them get a really good cozy nap outside. What's the, is there a theory behind this? Is there a set of reasons for it? Well, it is tradition mainly, but uh, there was a theory back in the days when it all started. Uh, this started when um, there was a tuberculosis epidemic um, in uh, like 1920-ish or, or the beginning of the 20th century. Then some uh, doctor had a theory that this uh, outside air would do the children very good. And also the living conditions in Iceland were very poor at the time. So to avoid getting this horrible disease, this would be a better solution than snapping inside. Um, I think Michael Robinson uh, has an interjection here. Yes, it's really interesting what you're saying because, uh, you know, of course, the 
There's so many novels who someone's suffering from tuberculosis, they send them to the warm climate sanitarium, you know, where they, they hang out. Yeah. But but in the north, you'd have these expeditions, these British and American expeditions. These guys would end up getting scurvy. And because no one really knew about the germ theory of disease, they figured that it was some kind of miasma or bad air from the ship. And, you know, you'd, you'd, you could understand why after two years living together in a, in a ship they might think that. So uh, these uh, these uh, oftentimes the uh, commanders of these expeditions would get the, get the guys outside playing football on the ice uh, in the cold cold air as a kind of uh, rejuvenating uh, thing. You know, and the the other thought that I had, Luann Rice. I don't know where you, whether your uh, mom was a, a Doctor Spock influenced parent, but he grew up, I think, in New Haven, Benjamin Spock, and he grew, and his parents put him on an unheated. Uh, sleeping porch during the winter, and he really advocated that for uh, children. He thought uh, that American children should should sleep well bundled uh, at night in, without any heat. I don't know. Do, does that? Need, and yeah. does that have... My mother was a Dr. Spock mom, and I. But when I was hearing the story about the Iceland, about the babies, I, I had that immediate thought: like we slept with our windows open in the winter. It was very normal to have a you know a lot of fresh air in the house at night. So, but not quite the same as being put out on the ice, but still. <laughs> Michael, what, you were going to say something else? One of the best uh, children's, uh, one of the best-selling children's books of the early 1900s was a book called The Snow Baby by Josephine Peary, who was the wife of Robert Peary, the uh, explorer who supposedly made it to the North Pole. And she delivered her first child at, uh, I think, 82 degrees north latitude in Greenland. And uh, as, you know, much to the chagrin of her husband, uh, her book outsold his book, his her children's book about delivering the child and this vision of a you know white baby uh, born among the Inuit in the north. So, Hodla, does this um, practice extend to your uh, infancy? In other words, were you a baby asleep in a stroller uh, outside a restaurant or coffee house while your parents were inside on a very cold Icelandic day? <laughs> yes, definitely I was. And my siblings have. Uh, babies and and they sleep outside as well. Um, and and uh, you know uh, we you talked about sort of why why this might have happened historically. Um, do do people from Iceland now still believe? I mean, well, first of all, we should say life expectancy in Iceland is is pretty good, right? Yeah, true. Like like eighty two is that the average life expectancy? Yeah. yeah. So yes. do, do people attribute it at, at least partly to that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it's just. We're our first. Um, we're, we're, we just we have very good living conditions, I guess. Guess so. And uh, we're a small nation, so it it takes a. Yeah, no, I don't think that's the reason, but but still, I think the reason for people doing it nowadays is basically that uh, they find that children tend to fall asleep faster uh, if there are strollers around, and um, and also they take longer naps for some reasons. Um, when you you said that when you ran this article, when this article was published, that you got a lot of response to it. Um, yeah. Was it response just kind of like this right here, where we asked you to be on a radio show, or were there some people who who had kind of a negative response, like this? This just isn't a very good idea. Uh, no, I, I didn't get any negative response for some reason, but yeah, just curiosity, basically. All right. Well, listen. Thanks so much for joining us on, on the show today. Yeah, thank you, guys. And we're sort of winding down here, wrapping up. But, you know, one of the things that I'll sort of throw it to you for a second, Luann, um, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this show, I think, is because, you know, we are nearing the end of what has been a fairly punishing winter. And one of the ways that you dealt with this punishing winter was to actually go someplace colder uh, and, and further north. But 
you know, the, the sort of way in which we experience this sometimes, particularly now because we're all hopelessly interconnected, is you're on social media and you, you post something about the cold and the snow and somebody immediately jumps on and goes, wow, because it's 81 degrees down here in Fort Myers, too bad for you guys or something. And, and that can be a very sort of punishing moment. On the other hand, I, I feel as though even just listening to her talk about the babies in their strollers on a, a cold day in Iceland, that maybe the solution really is to kind of embrace the cold a little bit more, as you have. Well, it's interesting that when I was in the Arctic, it was actually colder in Connecticut, because both my sister and my, a friend let me know that, that you, you were having a really bad cold snap right then. Um, and there is the, the Gulf Stream effect that occurs in at least part of Norway that I was in until I got to the Arctic Circle and then beyond, and then it was colder. But um, I, I know what you mean, though, about, about social media. And I noticed my dear friend and agent was in Florida recently, and she was posting beautiful photos of the beach. And she actually like had to post an almost apology because the rest of us were up here in the, the cold and the snow. Um, but I was happy to be in the cold and the snow. I didn't, I didn't begrudge her the beautiful weather. I was happy she was there. But... It it is a, it, social media does have an interesting way of making us all think. I think about another place. Another place else. indeed. Yeah, I'm leaving for Vieques on Tuesday. I promise oh. not to post a whole bunch of pictures. We have to stop here. Thanks so much to Lou Ann Rice, uh, author Michael Robinson, professor and author uh, Mary Erlander and Hodler. I'm not going to screw up her last name again. It didn't sound good the first time. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow with the nose in our tournament of books. The life I chose is the fellow in the north. Okay, how about this one? What do polar bears like to eat? Burgers. <laughs> hey, I'm just trying to break the ice here. <laughs>